Do you want to do you want to do the introduction since you haven't been here for so long? That's your this is that's your punishment. You got to do oh. the intro. <laughs> or, or I can do it, but I'll make fun of you if you let me if you make me do it. I'll make fun of you for not being here for so long. I hope that's okay. All right. How about I do the intro and make fun of myself for not being here? That's compromise. <laughs> there you go. Okay. <laughs> Hi, everyone. I'm Andrew. And I'm Michael. And this is the Endurance Innovation Podcast. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Endurance Innovation. And uh, I think Michael would also like to welcome me back to Endurance Innovation <laughs> because welcome it's been back, a little Andrew. while. <laughs> it's been a little while, and I've, I've definitely missed it. Um, so it's uh, it's something that he's put a lot of effort into. And unfortunately, I, I haven't been able to make the last couple of recordings. So, um, so welcome back, everyone. Welcome back, Andrew. <laughs> so, Today we wanted to do an episode where uh, we're just easing easing me back into the recording, so not in front of anyone else. So it's just Michael and myself. But uh, we have a couple topics that we wanted to go over, and one was um, racing and training in the cold. And uh, if we have time, the other that we'd like to talk about is uh, is actually some probably good off season training hygiene, um, and something I'm very guilty of not doing properly. Uh, but Michael has gotten good at it. And he's, uh, he's also been making fun of me for, or not making fun of me, but maybe criticizing for, <laughs> for not being consistent. I hope we're not talking about how frequently you wash your bibs, Andrew. Uh, well, I mean, that could be another point, but uh, <laughs> I don't think that needs a separate episode or even a, a part on this episode. Yeah, there's not, there's not much, uh, there's not much uh, debate or, or controversy there. And fortunately, um, it's just audio and not smell. <laughs> smell of vision is not yet to become a thing, fortunately. Exactly. Because I do actually, speaking of it, I do have like a stinky pair of bibs hanging up behind me because um, before I throw them in the in the laundry, I, uh, I usually just hang them up for a bit. Well, I have a stinky pair that I'm currently wearing because I just finished workout. So. <laughs> no, that's not that's not very actually. Speaking of hygiene, that's that's probably something you should. If you if you need ten minutes to go and change. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is my punishment. Okay, fair enough. It's like your hair shirt. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <sweaty exactly>. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, I love it. Welcome back, Andrew. Welcome back. Uh, <laughs> so as Andrew, yeah, as Andrew introduced, um, <clears throat> the the first topic is training in the cold, and this was uh, spawned. Well, actually, Andrew, you sent me you sent me a note about wanting to do this a while ago. Yeah, yeah, and actually, it, it came from a friend of mine. Uh, so call it to uh, Jesse, who's. Um, one of my classmates from university or sort of classmate. Um, but, uh, he went on to bigger and better things and he's now a doctor. So he <laughs> went, on, went beyond the engineering degree. Um, so, uh, yeah, he, he brought this up and it was a question he had because he had been, um, well, he lives in Kenora for part of the year, um, Kenora, Ontario, which is, uh, fairly far North. Mm -hmm. If you, if you do happen to know where it is, uh, so it can get pretty cold. And he was wondering about the impact of, um, of training in the cold and, and what happens in these extreme cold temperatures. And I know in Alberta, um, I mean, we had a pretty good cold snap there through December and January. Uh, and I think Toronto got, uh, you know, people were complaining in Toronto. <laughs> it's, it's it was Toronto it was cold, cold right now. Yeah. It's, yeah. Right now it's Toronto cold. It's like, I'm looking at my weather and it's minus 13 and with the wind chill, it's probably minus, I don't know, 22 or 24 or something like that. 
So I think that's, that's uncomfortable unless you're a polar bear. So yeah. um, regardless of who you are and where you live, but, uh, but certainly when you get into like the minus twenties, minus thirties, mm-hmm. uh, it becomes dangerous for a number of reasons. And the obvious one is frostbite. Like you've got to protect yourself and make sure your, right. your skin isn't uh, freezing. But um, yeah, Jesse's point was uh, just what happens to your lungs in these conditions. And the air is really cold and it turns out that it does some, some nasty things. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, you sent me that you sent me that paper and I sort of I'm sorry, I forgot about it because I had too many things on my mind. And then I saw uh, a piece by Alex Hutchinson and I think uh, he refers to the same paper. And this was a, uh, a piece that he did for Outside Magazine in early December. And mm-hmm. he, he talks about training in the cold and some of some of the findings from this paper, which are which are interesting and uh, some of the sort of the, the thresholds where, um, you know, you could or some people will experience physiological harm are considerably lower or warmer, I should say, than than I previously thought. Yeah, yeah. So it actually calls into question some of, uh, well, specifically Nordic skiing, uh, because that that Mm -hmm. can be in pretty extreme temperatures. But just calling out the fact that you can be putting your body into um, basically long-term damaging conditions by racing, I think minus 15 Celsius is the threshold that they used. Uh, And it could be higher, but it also depends on the humidity, because I think the humidity is actually a big factor in whether whether or not your lungs are being damaged. Yeah, that's right. And that was something that was an interesting finding, too, that it wasn't so much the cold air. It was just how little moisture that air contained. And uh, I remember, I forget which episode this was, but you you spoke about that um, some time ago on our show, Andrew, about how, you know, relative humidity is, you know, relative humidity may be quite high, but if the t- air temperature is very low, then the absolute um uh, quantity of, of, you know, water dissolved in the, in the atmosphere is very low at those, at those low temperatures. So then the, the absolute value of, uh, of that, <clears throat> of the amount of water is, is quite low. And then when you inhale it into your warm, moist lungs, then the relative humidity of that air is very, very low and it pulls moisture from your lungs. And that's, that's where some of that damage occurs. Yeah, exactly. You're basically extra humidifying the air. So yeah. cold air pulls out um, a lot more uh, humidity or a lot more moisture from your body than warm air would because warm air is already somewhat humidified, at least compared to what uh, the alternative is. And so that can dry out your lungs. Another another thing that actually can happen, and um, I was thinking about this earlier today after we decided on the topic, but... Um, you could breathe in cold air and you're getting basically the same as sweat. So you're getting evaporation inside your lungs. So Hmm. it may further drive down the temperature. So you might, uh, and I don't know that anyone can easily measure this because it's not like you can stick a thermal couple right (laughs) right in your lungs, right on the surface. But um, it could be completely wrong and off topic, but maybe you're getting more evaporation. So maybe it's driving down Hmm. the temperature uh, sufficiently that uh, that it's at least harmful for the skin. So that could be a factor. That's pure supposition. I have no no data to back that up. It's just based on kind of an analogy to sweat. But I think the the findings of this paper tie in directly to the fact that humidity or lack of humidity is is one of the big contributing factors to lung damage. 
Yeah, and uh, one of the interesting things that I they talked about was was how you can how you can tell whether you're experiencing these symptoms, and uh, and that is you know whether or not you have like a dry, scratchy throat or a little bit of a throat irritation, a bit of a cough um, uh, during the workout, but but even especially after the workout. So this is interesting because I'm sitting here in my basement <coughs> and that was a cough, that was not just a theatrical cough. That was a legit one I needed to get out of my, get off my chest. Pardon the stupid pun there. Um, I just did a, a fairly solid workout on the bike, uh, maybe the finish about an hour ago. And my, you know, we've got central heating, obviously, forced air heating in, in our in our house. And it's, uh, you know, it's comfortable in my basement, but it's cold outside. So the, the relative humidity in my basement is probably I don't know, 20, 20% or something, 20, 25%. And it's above 15, 16 degrees in this cool basement. Uh, so that's, uh, that's, that's pretty dry air. And having done a hard workout in that dry air, I can definitely feel it. So you can probably hear it in my voice too. It sounds a little bit like I need to clear my throat, which I've been doing nonstop. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> so I'm clearly suffering a little bit from this, uh, from this phenomenon currently. So this actually takes me back a little bit because I think when we were discussing uh, CrossFit, we were, I, I had just done a really, really hard CrossFit workout and that's what brought up the the topic previously. Mm, okay. And I was having the same issue. Um, I'd done the workout in the summer, but in Alberta, the air is, even the summer is quite low humidity. Um, so a lot of people who move here actually get uh, a lot of throat irritation or nosebleeds in the first hmm. little while until their bodies kind of adapt. And some people, they never really fully adapt. Um, but I had the same problem where I'd done this workout and there were two or three days afterwards where um, because of the intensity and because of the hard breathing for the prolonged period, I just ended up coughing. And this was, again, you know, after COVID because that's been most of our recent lives anyway. So <laughs> yeah. I was... Uh, exceptionally nervous about going out in public. And that was the first time I'd actually gotten a COVID test and it came back negative, but, um, yeah, it was, uh, like the cough was bad enough to trigger that. Hmm. Interesting. And that's, uh, yeah, that, so that, that supports the supposition that it's, that it is dry air and not necessarily cold air that, that causes this. But, uh, let's talk a little bit about what the, what some of those long-term effects are. And it sounds like, you know, if you do this to yourself frequently enough, then you could develop a condition called, uh, exercise induced bronchial constriction. And I know with some folks, this happens in, in, you know, atmospheres that are not necessarily very dry, but it sounds like the dry air really exacerbates it and it increases the the susceptible pool um, of population that, that can suffer from this condition. And it's, it's certainly not comfortable and it's, it's definitely not going to help performance either. And reading Alex Hutchinson's article, um, his point, which was, I think, pretty relevant, uh, especially with the Olympics coming up, um, his point was that there's a disproportionate use of um, asthma medication in Nordic skiers. Um, and there's around the Olympics, there's always going to be questions about controlled substances and what yep. is and isn't allowed because the, um, the bronchodilation properties of that could potentially help you with performance. But, um, but his thought was that it's actually um, more related to the fact that these people have done long-term damage to their lungs and require this in order to perform. Yeah, it sounds like there's not a there's not a ton of performance enhancing benefits to healthy people. Like so if you're healthy, you know, taking this medication, but this is now I'm getting 
I'm getting ahead of my skis. So it's uh, it's not a good uh, it's it's not not a performance enhancer for for healthy folks. So I at least Alex's point was that it's not probably not as big a deal as as some people make it out to be. But yeah, that's a case in point. Like that's that's clearly you know therapeutic medication for for individuals who have done some damage. So what um, I guess what are your thoughts then, Michael, about racing and training in the cold? How do you feel about it? Yeah, uh, kind of. I'll, I'll speak for myself. I uh, I don't. So first of all, right now I'm just totally over the cold. I'm a straight up Torontonian, and I'm tired of. It's been <laughs> below ten degrees for I think like three days in a row, and now I'm I'm like ah, this is the worst. This is the longest cold snap that has ever cold snapped in the history of cold snaps. And so <laughs> now I'm I'm really I'm I'm tired of it, and uh, kind of training indoors as much as I can. Um, personally, because I am sus- a little bit, I find myself susceptible to lung infections and bronchitis in general. Uh, if I have the slightest bit of a cold or any kind of like, I f- if I feel off at all, I will not train in anything that's kind of below minus 10. Um, and generally I won't go out below minus 15, minus 20, depending how ambitious I'm feeling. Um, and that's, so I, I am, I've felt that myself so i i don't do it uh with folks that i coach um you know if if the question comes up um then i have that conversation with them saying that look there is probably there might be some lung damage or at least acute lung damage that may not be long lasting if you are training in the cold um and it does depend on how long you are out there um and then the other piece of advice i remember this came from uh from tara posnikoff who was uh you know past guest and a friend of mine and a fellow coach in toronto um, about how uh, hydration is really important when you're training in the cold, and it's something that is uh, a little bit trickier than when it's when you're training in regular or warmer conditions, because your body, at least part of your thirst uh, response, is thought to be triggered to temperature, and so if you're cold, mm-hmm. your thought your thirst response can be blunted. At least that's a theory that I've heard. Um, and so you're less likely to drink and, uh, but drinking when it's cold is incredibly important because you're still losing a lot of that moisture, not necessarily through sweat, but through, uh, through respiration, which is what you were just talking about, Andrew, a few Mm -hmm. minutes ago, but how much of it leaves through your lungs. And so, um, that's another caution that I would, um, you know, I would make is making sure that if you are going to be training in cold temperatures, that you are still drinking a fair amount and drinking to thirst, I would argue in this case specifically, and we've had discussions in the past whether or not drinking to thirst is a good is a good um, um, strategy. Uh, but drinking to thirst in cold conditions, I would I would make the argument that it is definitely not a good strategy. That you want to drink more than your than thirst. Yeah, it's um, it's definitely an interesting way of looking at it. Um, and I think for myself, I tend to train indoors regardless of the weather, just because. Um, well, it's easier and more convenient usually. For sure. Um, and I'm a bit of a wuss too. So you may be from Toronto, but I'm far worse in weather. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, but yeah, like I, I I personally don't really enjoy training in the winter. And there's, there's a few other things that go with that as well. Uh, and one is the fact, and I think it was Alex's article called this out, but just you tend to get reduced uh, athletic performance. And it's actually mm, yes. uh, because of your muscle temperature. And I remember speaking to Kurt Bergen Taylor about this, where he had brought up the fact that uh, for track cyclists, quite often they want to keep their core body temperature down, but bring up their muscle temperature. Mm-hmm. And there's, I believe there's quite a number of papers. I don't have one particular reference offhand, but there's quite a number of studies that have confirmed that uh, increasing muscle temperature 
modestly will increase performance. So, totally. um, so the fact that uh, your peripherals are cold, um, not only is it uncomfortable, but it actually <clears throat> scientifically can decrease performance. Yeah, hundred uh, percent. Erica Gavell, when she was on our show uh, probably over a year ago, and we were talking about her study, um, she actually cited this, and I, and I, I also don't remember the the numbers, but certainly uh, an increase of one degree above baseline, so above homeostasis of muscle temperature, has a non-trivial and very repeatable. Uh, performance enhancing effect. So it's like your 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 force your maximal force generation is higher for sure. I forget if there are other other factors, but that is definitely a thing. There's a there's a very good body of evidence. I totally agree with you that warm muscles perform better than cold muscles. Um, now you can overcome that with a warm up, right? And I I do want to talk about warm ups because I think they're an important component of thinking about uh, training in the cold. Um, but the other thing that Alex brought up was, which was interesting, is that uh, the the other mechanism for, or the other cause for a reduced ability to perform in the cold is that your rate of perceived exertion is higher because your mm-hmm. discomfort is higher. So like being cold sucks. Nobody really, well, maybe some people <laughs> enjoy being cold, but I certainly don't. Doesn't sound like you do. And so being nope. cold <laughs> is shitty. So if you're, if you're out in the cold and you're doing a training session and it's, especially if it's a hard session and you're uncomfortable because the session is hard. So there's, you know, like training RPE, but then there's also environmental RPE, which is, you know, similar to what it's like being hot. I mean, there are other factors when you're hot, but uh, if you're uncomfortable, it's going to feel harder. So you're going to quit sooner, or you're going to be able to perform at a lower mechanical output, or in this case, probably even a lower like metabolic output, because you're just, you know, your your brain will will want to quit sooner than it would in uh, in temperate conditions, which I thought was a really interesting point. And it's backed up by, uh, by studies that they've done where, uh, and again, this is from Alex's paper, we're really milking that article uh, for all it's worth today. <laughs> Thank you, Alex. You get, you get at this, this point. Big, you should link it in the show notes. One hundred percent. I'll link it in the show notes. You can get like co-author credit, even though you didn't ask for it. Um, he uh, he cites some work that suggests that that time to exhaustion, you know, which is mm, uh, yes. kind of like a this kind of a soft metric for performance, but but TTE was reduced in cold conditions, like substantially cold conditions. I think and it was the, like the, half as much. Yeah, was, I don't like, know it if it was a, quite that much. Well, let's here, let's let's pull it up. Um, but it was it was substan- it was substantially lower. Uh, oh yeah, no, you're right. It was 67 minutes versus 112 minutes. So yeah, half as much almost. Um, and it was, uh, yeah, it was it, the th- the thought was because of that uh, you know rate of perceived exertion or or discomfort um, element. So here's another potentially scientific hypothesis. Uh, And this is just based on a lot of our discussions in the past and kind of linking it into uh, this muscle temperature discussion. But say um, say your your perceived uh, effort is tied into your core body temperature and your muscles, you've you've basically got a larger gradient. So a, a larger difference between your peripheral temperatures and your core body temperature. So your core body temperature may be hitting its threshold, but uh, because of the lower peripheral temperature, you're not getting the same performance out of your muscles. So maybe that's part of it. Um, But this is a huge grain of salt. This is not a scientific, this is just kind of putting A and B together to try and guess at what might be happening. 
Yeah, I might push back on that. I don't think that you know, especially. I don't think you you would you would you would hit like any kind of thermal like upper thermal thresholds for core temperature because it's just so easy to shed heat when it's cold, right? Like any kind of sweat or anything like you actually don't want to sweat when it's cold because mm-hmm. that'll make you colder. Um, so it's I I don't know. I'm not. I'm not super convinced of that theory, Andrew. But okay. uh, uh, and, the, and the temperature sensors are in the skin, right? So like you can't really feel you can't you can't you don't feel temperature you don't feel your core temperature, right? Like you could you definitely will feel gross when it gets really hot, or you get all woozy and confused when it gets cold. But uh, you know the 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 uh, the temperature receptors, I believe, are all in the skin. So the way that you perceive it being hot or cold is is surface. So it is okay. very much peripheral. Okay. Um, That's my understanding. You have to bring biology into this. <laughs> you know, it's an entirely <laughs> biological discussion. Um, what, what about the other thought that uh, say you're providing most of, the, most of the heat generation in your legs and mm-hmm. if your upper body, for example, is not working hard and it's cold and your legs are warm, I wonder how that balances out. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, like it's it's the same blood that's going to you know to all the bits, right? So if you're, I don't, I don't, I can't imagine there would be a massive temperature gradient. I, I'm sure somebody has studied this, and probably in your like ex- extreme extremities, like you know fingertips and toes and stuff, there might be a little bit of a difference because also those blood vessels are small. But I'm willing to bet that anywhere that has like big blood vessels, like you know your your obviously your trunk, but like all the the limb, the big the major parts of your limbs. I mean, there's probably some vasoconstriction happening to preserve mm-hmm. core temperature but also if you're i guess it depends on how cold it is and how hard you're working but you know most of us would probably generate a lot of metabolic energy a lot of you know which is of course heat or or uh, it's it's wasted as it's it ends up as heat right uh i think that we can probably keep the core temperatures fairly warm and then if the core temperature is warm there's probably not a ton and this is where i'm getting out of my out of my knowledge and this is just <laughs> this is this is me just guessing but i'm i think what i think the trigger for vasoconstriction is core temperature and i'm basing that on um, the fact that, you know, you could have your hands could be freezing and then you, you start, you, you do a little, a little bit of a warm up or something and you're, you know, you get moving around and, and you're, even if you're just on the bike or if you're running, um, and your hands aren't doing anything, but then they, they warm up too, because then, then the, as the core temperature comes up through your metabolic activity, then, then the, uh, you know, uh, again, so total guess, but I think the, <laughs> the blood vessels are less constricted and you get a little bit more blood flow to the fingers because the, the body's less concerned about, um, you know, hypothermia if there's a lot of energy being generated by, you know, muscular contraction. So let's take a step back from the ledge of completely guessing at things and yes. <laughs> back towards science and experience. That's right. Let's get back in the box. Yeah. So the, the thing that I think is an important takeaway, and this is probably something that is somewhat uh, logical to people or somewhat natural to people. But uh, when you look at exercising outdoors, when you start, you are cold. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you have to have a lot of layers or, well, the, the idea is you do have a lot of layers, but you have to have a lot of insulation when you start, but you're going to start generating heat and you're going to need to get rid of that heat. And you actually don't want to sweat sooner and more intensely than you have to because you can overcool yourself totally so the uh the strategy uh and this is especially noticeable when you're doing a hike that's like climbing a hill or climbing a a mountain or something like that Mm -hmm. you have to uh dress warmly to start and then start unlayering before you actually feel comfortable 
doing so because you're kind of lagging a little bit in your your perception of heat and uh and that prevents you from getting too sweaty which overcools you and then when you're coming say down the hill or you're at a less intense part of the workout uh, you actually need to bundle up kind of beforehand again because you need to conserve that heat in order to to make sure your body's uh, comfortable again so you want to it is it is a bit of a challenge and it comes down to experience but um it's it's certainly an important part of exercising in the cold depending on what kind of exercise you're doing totally and it's way worse and or harder let's say if you're on the bike so if you can you know imagine going up climbing the hill your speed is slow so the air velocity is low right and you're working harder and then when you're coming down the hill the air velocity is much higher and so if the if the air is cold even if it's not a windy day but you're shooting down this hill at 50 60 kilometers an hour that is some wild wind chill and uh, and you you're probably sweaty from the climb so like that that is probably the extreme case of what you just described but mm-hmm. yeah uh, excellent point um, the way that I like to think about it, I mean, I, I haven't done a ton of hiking in the cold, um, but with running, which I've done a fair bit, uh, I want to be cold when I head out the door. Like I want to yeah. be like actually, you know, quite, un- like, you know, kind of a six out of 10, seven out of 10, uncomfortable thinking like, you know, really second guessing my life choices <laughs> when I'm out the door. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, and then knowing that I know, I know that I'll warm up. I'm heavy and I, you know, I, I generate a lot of heat when I run. And so I know that it's going to be, you know, that I, I know that unless it's like extremely cold, in which case I'm not running anyway, that I will, I'll warm up. So I, my, my kind of standby is, um, you know, base layer, um, which is wicking and long sleeve probably, and a shell if it's, if it's windy and if it's not windy, then I could probably, I might even just do two layers of like a base and a mid, uh, and, uh, you know, depending on the, again, depending on the temperature, but I run hot and I'll like, I'll do, I was joking with a, a friend of mine who's in South Carolina, um, that I, I'll wear shorts until about, until like minus five because I've got big <laughs> legs and they generate a lot of heat and I don't really need to keep them that warm. Um, but you know, below that, then I'll, they'll, I'll also have some kind of something covering the legs as well. Yeah. Um, are there any particular styles or brands that, that you recommend for the, the base or mid layers? Like, and this is full disclosure, this is not an advertisement. This is Michael's <laughs> personal preference. Yeah, I actually, I, um, uh, what do I like? So, so Alex came, uh, came, came out fairly strongly in favor of Merino. I do like <laughs> yes. Merino. Uh, I'm, I'm definitely a fan. I have a few, a few base layers. It does last a long time too. So it's expensive if you buy the good stuff, but I find that it's, it's good investment. Um, and it's comfy and it is actually probably of the, of all the stuff I have, it is the most comfortable when it's wet. So, uh, it's obviously way better than cotton, but nobody's really training cotton, but even like good polyester, I have a couple of gore base layers that also have worn really well. I've had them for years. Um, the sad part is that I'm a little bit like my, my morphology is no longer suitable for them because <laughs> they are, they are next to skin, which is actually a really important component of base layers. They have to have to have to be you know, they don't have to make you feel like a sausage, but they do need to be next <laughs> to your skin because the whole point of a, the number one function of a base layer is to pull sweat away from your skin. And if it's not in contact with your skin, mm-hmm. it can't do that. So if it's, if it's floppy at all, it's not doing its job. So you have to, you know, they have to be snug. Um, and, uh, I find that 
Yeah, the, the gore ones are a little bit, they look a little bit, I look a little silly in them these days. Good thing I usually wear a, like a layer over top of them. Um, visual protection. Visual, exactly. Yes, for your eyeballs as well as for my core temperature. Um, but also, yeah, but the, the Merino stuff is really, really nice. Um, and it stay, it's, it feels even better than the gore stuff when it's, uh, when it's wet and with, and eventually I'll start sweating anyway, unless it's like exceptionally cold. Um, and then the Merino, uh, will, will work really, really well. And the other nice thing about Merino is that it doesn't smell um, or you have to work really hard to stink it up versus like polyester. I don't care what kind of silver yarns your marketing department <laughs> is telling me is in that stuff. It's still going to stink. So um, the the natural fiber Merino stuff I find is really nice. And then for an outer layer, <clears throat> I want the thinnest thing possible. So I want zero insulation on that outer, outer layer. Uh, I have, a, again, a really old jacket that's a pearl. It was like a high-end pearl Izumi jacket. Um, and I love it because it's like fluorescent yellow. So I'm visible because I run in, at night or early in the morning frequently. And it's uh, all, it's like the thinnest possible shell material with probably with some vents in it as well. Um, and that I'll wear that in every condition. Like there's never, there's never a case where I'm running where I want a heavier jacket because again, like I won't run below minus 15 anyway. So a thin Merino base and, uh, and that super thin shell jacket is what I want for the coldest kind of the coldest conditions. So what's your reasoning for the, the thin shell? Is it uh, wind protection? Yeah, it's just it's straight up wind protection. That's right. So it's like it has obviously no insulative value whatsoever. Uh, so sometimes when I'll do like when I'll run trails, when I know there's not a lot of wind because it's, you know, usually in the forest or the valleys here in Toronto and there, there's quite a bit of shelter there, I, I will usually not have that jacket on because I find that if I have – um, you know, two two kind of fabric layers, not not wind resistant layers. Then, uh, then I sweat less because my sweat evaporates quickly, uh, much quicker than that. Because even though this is a very light shell, I don't care how good how breathable your shell is, it's still not as breathable as a not shell. So if <laughs> if I don't need the if I don't need it, I I'll try not to I'll try not to wear it. But if it's windy or if it's cold, I'll, I'll yeah I bust out that little thin jacket. Yeah, so that's interesting. It's basically a a shutter or a throttle for your amount of evaporation of your sweat. Totally, but it's worth it because then it cuts down on the wind, right? The, like the mm. so then I would prefer to be a little sweaty and not have the wind hit my skin than be less sweaty but have the wind cut right through whatever I'm wearing. Oh yeah, that's not a comfortable feeling. Um, and I, I even know in my basement if I'm doing an indoor workout and it's a cool day. So if it's uh, maybe not quite as cool as your basement, but say it's 17 or 18 degrees in, in my basement. Um, if I allow myself to get sweaty before turning the fan on and then I turn that on, regardless of how hard I'm working, that's an uncomfortable minute or two. While yes. my skin temperature just like plummets because of the evaporation. If you're If you're soaked with sweat and you turn on a fan, it is unbelievable how much cooling it gets and please refer to any of our past episodes about evaporative cooling <laughs> yes especially if it's if it's cool and cool air cool and dry air oh yeah it, it wicks it, it strips that moisture off uh yeah i i'm with you 100 i turn my fan on one of the best purchases i've ever made was like a 15 or 20 dollar um smart uh a smart um outlet uh, from amazon that i have mm -hmm. my fan plugged into so it like controls i control it from my phone so then i start riding no fan and i'll usually make it five to ten minutes into the workout until like i'm sweating you know until like i'm i'm definitely feel like i feel warm that's when i turn the fan on and not exactly. and not a second before that because 
Um, and I think the other thing, the other cool thing about that is it makes your warmups faster. It makes them more efficient. Yeah. Um, and that that's I'm going to segue into warmups now, unless you want to Ooh, say something. I like this. Okay. This makes it sound like it was very well planned. Yeah, well, <laughs> it, it, it was well planned. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, for warmups, I had this conversation with with one of my athletes um, about, you know, how do you structure a warmup? Because usually I don't, you know, I, I assign a warmup, but I usually will also say, like, warm up however the heck you want to, because warmups are individual and warmups have, like, in my opinion, two functions. One is in the name you want to warm up your muscles and like what we were just talking about your the the temperature of your muscles makes training a lot easier and especially this is especially true for a hard workout if you're doing a hard workout you need a proper warm up um because you want those muscles to be optimal temperature so you can they can do the work um and also there's probably some like reduced injury risk cuz when they're warm and the blood is flowing to them there's they're more pliable than when they're cold and so there's less risk of some kind of muscle tear or muscle pull or whatever you want to call it um and then the other thing i and this is a not not having to do with um uh with temperature at all but because we were talking about warm-ups the other thing that i find very useful in warm-ups is a few activations so this would be any kind of you know activity relevant or even like somewhat activity relevant um movement which requires a lot of muscle right so the prime example on the bike would be like you want to do a couple of short sharp accelerations right they don't need to be anywhere near maximal but they do need to be like well north of of your you know your ftp or threshold or whatever lt2 um so that you 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 are definitely pulling on those um you know those type 2 muscle fibers and the whole point there is just to turn your brain on right that's just like to to remind it oh yeah we gotta you know activate those other muscles (laughs) and this is how you do it yeah time to go that's it and you don't need to do a lot of them i find like three to five is plenty and they they should be short like less than 30 seconds you don't want to be building fatigue doing this you just want to be doing a little bit of you know like it's just a little wake up um and that's that you would do that after the muscles are warm. So, you know, depending on how cold it is and how hard a workout you want to be doing, you, you do a very kind of gradual ramp um, of intensity uh, to warm up the muscles and then you do those activations. And like I said, people, some people like long warmups and some people are fine with shorter warmups. Uh, obviously, if it's hot, you want to do a shorter warmup because then you, you the last thing you want, and you hinted at this earlier, Andrew, is you don't want to drive your core temperature up mm-hmm. when it's hot. Right. When it's cold, it doesn't. You, you want that, actually. But uh, when it's hot, you don't want that. So you got to be careful. Um, and with uh, but when it's cold, um, you're that's there's no danger of that. But it'll also take longer to get your muscles and your core temperature up. So the warm ups when it's cold generally are longer than when it's hot. Um, or you can, you know, you can do things like not turn your fan on in the beginning because then you will heat up a little bit faster, probably not much faster, but a little bit faster. Um, and I think you you'd will probably be surprised. Yeah. Yeah. You're probably right. And then, uh, um, and that's how I do it. Cause I never have enough time for proper warm up. So I'm like, I just, I will go to the point where it <laughs> starts getting real uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, no, seriously, you know, uh, yeah. keep the intensity low, you know, be so that you're, you're, you're on the safer side, but keep you want to you want to increase that that temperature faster and if you've got a core sensor you can slap one of those on and you can you can get a sense of like oh i start to feel really good at like core temperature of 37.5 or 37.8 or whatever and then you can you can kind of like play around with your warm-ups and see see at what point uh you know 
at least the the thermal side of the of the requirements of the warm up have been met. That's a really interesting use case for the sensor. Um, it's something I hadn't thought of because I'd always looked at where do I start to feel shitty, and <laughs> uh, and you know that number is lower than ideally I would like to see, but uh, that's no. my own physiological limitation. But looking at it in terms of warm up is also pretty interesting because if um, if it takes a little while to uh, to get yourself comfortable and you know that you're cold starting, then yeah, there's some good information there too. So I think this is possibly a good place to, to wrap it up. I know that we kind of hinted at another topic beforehand, but that was, uh, um, I don't know if we ever really fully revealed what it was. So maybe we'll keep that a secret, keep it behind the curtain <laughs> and then reveal it Hint, next it's time. Not, it's not Andrew's dirty bibs. Yeah. No one wants to talk about that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, that's a, that's, that's a good idea. We'll keep this one uh, nice and concise. Folks, we have uh, a couple of really fun interviews coming up in the next uh, in the next couple of weeks. So uh, stay tuned for those as always. And uh, thank you for listening. Uh, if you like the show, tell a friend. Uh, give us a five-star rating and a review on iTunes if you're so inclined. And also consider supporting us on patreon and that's at patreon.com slash endurance innovation we've gotten uh, a couple more folks pitching in and i'll uh, give them shout outs on our next episode and uh, very appreciative of those thanks folks and uh mm-hmm. have a good one